Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Broken Oars Podcast. And we are here with another one of our interviews. And this is a particularly exciting and esteemed guest. Aaron, tell the good people at home who we're going to be talking to today. Is it, Lewin, Fergal McKay, the gentleman on Twitter who said that athlete welfare is guff, that we were children and he wouldn't come on our podcast if we paid him, then realised that he'd outed himself as a professional sports writer who didn't give a damn about athlete welfare, deleted all of his abusive posts and vanished off into the internet ether? I hope not, because he sounds like an ass. I, I, thought we, I thought we had quite a nice person to talk to today. But, you know... Twitter is a bit of a risky format. That I mean, there are certain people that you should not contact on Twitter, aren't they? Are you talking about bikey Twitter? Well, yeah, bikey Twitter, otherwise known as the worst Twitter. I mean, it's it, it's just one of those places that if you're not fanatical about shooting motorists, you're fanatical about accusing everyone who's ever sat on a bike and tried to go a little bit fast about injecting huge amounts of growth hormone, other people's blood, and lots and lots of amphetamines. You know, I, I think bikey Twitter in general is best avoided. Can I ask a question then, if that's the case? And we, we've known each other as we've now established um, for about 13 years. And I'd like to think that we're, we're good friends, even though it's, it's very much a master-servant relationship in the old style. Um, <laughs> Why didn't you warn me about this before I, I said to a, to, to a, a bikey on Twitter, I think that female athletes deserve an equal pay with their male Oh, athletes. you didn't say that, Aaron. You just don't understand the complexities of modern cycle road racing. You know, right. female athletes can't possibly have the same pay as male athletes or the entire sport would collapse. I couldn't, the thing is, I couldn't understand those complexities, Loon, because a hundred sweaty fat men in Lycra on 5,000 pound machines that they aren't good enough to ride instantly jumped on top of me and pummeled the living shit out of me. I fear for their wives and their daughters, but mainly I feared for my own testicles and kidneys at the time. Okay, it's important to remember that bikey Twitter, being the worst Twitter, they, they don't take kindly to disagreement and they also this is important to understand they also don't actually know that rowing twitter exists they don't really know that rowers exist you know when you say i'm a rower and this is very strange because rowers love cycling it's this endurance exercise that requires you to have very big lungs and very strong legs even though you don't get to eat, eat cake very often mm. but Bikey Twitter doesn't understand that rowing exists. They kind of say, rowing, that's like with canoes, yes? And it, 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 certain things are best left well alone. And, you know, the, on the occasions that we've, that we've ended up at the bottom end of a pylon in Twitter, you know, you really, you know, it, it, it's been the same thing every time. It's been bikey Twitter. Um, and you can almost guarantee, guarantee they're the people who's in charge of it. Worst Twitter ever, best avoided, especially by Rose, because A, there aren't very many of us. B, 
we're too nice for bikey Twitter. Just just leave them alone. I wish I'd known that before I, I'd said that I, I believe that women deserve the same rate of pay as men, and and that and the athlete welfare was important to people there. Because I, I mean, don't understand the complexities. I know, but. I've used that Twitter feed to say things about social justice and, and you've been very kind in letting me say that as my overlord and oppressor. And, and you know, I've, I've got involved in some things where I think that, you know, maybe our, our small but potent voice should be heard. And, uh, and um, everyone's been very nice and it's been a very good debate. But I basically spent most of last <laughs> week... You spoke to a cyclist. <laughs> I spoke to a cyclist and I got the living shit kicked out of me for saying that women deserve the same rate as pay as, as men. And then I met this this Fergal McKay who claims to be a, a well-known professional cycling writer who said that athlete welfare was guff. He wouldn't come on our poxy podcast if we paid him. And when I pointed out that it, it was good enough for Olympic champions and, and the coaches of Olympic champions, um, he called us children. Uh, which we can be. I mean, I've made jokes about spaniels uh, and I'm not even funny, but I find them pantwettingly hilarious. So bikey Twitter, best avoiders. So we don't have Fergal McKay on. We don't have a hundred sweaty men in Lycra on. Who do we have on the podcast this week? We have Martin Crossy Cross, Olympic gold medalist, Olympic bronze medalist, and currently probably the voice of... British rowing. I mean, if if you have a rather gruff and immensely confident voice in your head when you're watching international boats hammer it down the track at the Olympics, at the World Cup, at the World Championships, that's probably Crossy. He does a great job at that. And this podcast, I think, is brilliant for revealing... A, a much softer, much more thoughtful side. We, you, you get a fantastic other insight into an enormously thoughtful and knowledgeable man with decades of experience in the sort. Yeah, I can't add any, anything to that. So I think we should just let Martin take it away and we shall pick it up at the far side. It's, I think, let's face it, it's mainly about you. So... Um... Yeah, but I think I think Martin needs to needs to know what you I mean visually what you look like. He can't just look at a ceiling. For, so, if if you imagine Martin a kind of a, a a more handsome version of James Cracknell with the same kind of psychotic intensity when it comes to competition, but oh, with better no. but with, with better people skills out of the boat, would that be a, a fair comment about you, Lewin? I I think it's probably much better to use um, Hodgie's description, which is. What did he say? Paul? Oh, God. Blonde? What's his name? Won two gold medals. He, he, he thinks I, I look like him. 2012 and 2016. Oh, Alex Gregory. Yeah, Alex. He, he, he basically says, kind of like Alex Gregory, only less so. Alex Gregory is a handsome man, Lewin. And, yeah, and, and, and he's got the beard and the hair and everything, and he's like moved to a Scottish island from the looks of things. It, yeah, it's not fair. Um, he won sort of, uh, there was a competition which one of the American rowers did, a female Oswald, um, for the sexiest guy in rowing, and he won it. In, in, in general, he, he is kind of slightly irritating like that, isn't he? He, he writes children's books and yeah, generally... Considered to be a lovely bloke by everyone who knows him. It's. Um, I think Hodge's exact words about him were, "He's silky. He is silky in a boat." Yeah. 
Yeah. He, well, yeah, definitely. I used to coach him, in fact, at Molsey. He, I didn't realise he was a Molsey boy, actually. No, he came down for um, most of the season, the summer season, down at Molsey, and Simon Cox was running the squad there, and I was his assistant. So I got to coach. That's where I got to know Alex, really. If you, if you, if you imagine a less handsome version of Alex Gregory, then that's no, basically Lewin. <laughs> just missing a, a couple of gold medals and, you know... Shall we, now Martin has finally given us some of his time and we've, we've finally got you in some kind of, shall we just launch into all of this? What or have we, we already launched into it? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated to, to sort of hear about your sort of, your club history, Martin, because very much you're, you come from that era when, you know, people came up as club rowers. There was, no, there was none of this, there was no kind of world-class start and the national squad was something you made it to after sort of like coming up through the club system. Well, I, I had a couple of clubs, really. Uh, the, the first one was Thames Tradesman, and that was, and I joined because my teacher was a member, a guy called Jim Clark. Really the reason I became an international rower. Not, not a rower, but an international rower, I think. But I was pretty crap at school in terms of, sporting achievements and I wasn't much good in rowing either and uh, we only used to row once a week and Jim said to me you know go down the club ask for George George Hooper who was then you know the the club chairman and you know he'll take you under his wing sort of thing and he did and essentially I kind of learned to row properly at tradesmen and then got better and better relatively within the school setup that I was rowing and a couple more boys came down to tradesmen as well. So we kind of supplemented what we were doing at school, at tradesmen. And I won a few pots, you know, won my novice pots with tradesmen, senior C, senior B. And and so I, I got to a certain level. And then really, when I was at, uh, when I was in the upper six form school, sort of 17, um, going on 18, um, I rode in a composite crew with uh, three guys from another school, Ealing, Ealing sort of high school, okay. that was coached by David Tanner. And um, we rode out of, um, well, it's currently now Thames Trades in the Boathouse, but it wasn't then. It was it was just by Barnes Bridge. And we had a lot of success in that combination. And and we, we won at Henley. We, we sort of won a lot of elite races in the four in the UK. And after winning a silver medal in the World Championships in 75, we kind of, um, three of us decided to carry on for, to try and get international representation, full international representation, I guess. And so there was a question of where we went and there were two or three clubs up for it. One was Tradesmen, um, who had another four guys there. This, this was a, a really sort of slick four with a guy called Johnny Roberts in the stroke seat who won a couple of silver medals um, in the 70s in a pair with Jim Clark. Um, and so there was a bit too much competition at Tradesman. Um, the second was Thames Rowing Club, which was kind of a bit creaking and it wasn't the sort of club it is today. Um, it, it didn't have a great reputation. And the third club was London Rowing Club and they had a new Carlish Four, which was state of the art. And they kind of said, look, if you come down here, we'll look after you. So we were, the three of the Ealing Four went down to London Rowing Club and basically London Rowing Club looked after us 
from sort of 75 through to 81. So we rode as the London Rowing Club four. Um, and, and, and that, that was kind of my club history. So Thames Tradesman and London Rowing Club. And, um, and you got selected pretty much as a crew. So, you know, we were the fastest four in, in the country running for London Rowing Club. And, you know, there were no selections. Nobody said, oh, would you go faster if so-and-so came in your crew? You know, we were the four guys from London Rowing Club. And uh, we, could, we didn't really have that much opposition. You know, I don't think people bothered to race us because we were, you know, going fast. When you're like an international standard club crew, it must make the local regattas seem like, well, I don't know, this is, this is a bit pointless to go and race there. Yeah, I mean, we, we just did international regattas, really. You know, sometimes we did a composite in the head with other guys from London Rowing Club. Generally speaking, um, you know, we rode at Mannheim or Salzgitter or Ratzeburg, um, you know, those sort of regattas in Germany. That that was where we raced because that was where the opposition was. And and so London were very good to us. They looked after us. Um, you know, they bought us new boats. And then when we got to a certain level, the Rowing Association used to buy us new boats. But uh, we were always based at London Rowing Club. Can I just unpick a couple of things that you've, you've said there, Martin? If I'm wrong or I'm paraphrasing incorrectly, then let me know. But you, you said you, you weren't very good at school in terms of school sports or academically or a combination of the two. And then you kind of found your way to rowing. Can you remember a point where you went, oh, actually, I could be quite good at this. A lot of rowers, it seems to be there's, there's kind of like a, this is my sport. Uh, well, I think the moment when it came was I was... 15 years old and I was watching the national championships um, and there was a pair that rode out of Thames Tradesman who got a bronze medal in, in, in the pairs, J16 pairs from Chiswick School. And I used to look at them at the club and I thought, oh, you know, I, I could do that. I could beat them. To put, to put it in context, really, um, I wasn't good at sport at school, which was embarrassing in a way because my dad was head of sport at the school. Okay. So he was a really good footballer. I did. I didn't. I wasn't. Didn't really play football at all. Um, and it was a, a bit of a mystery, a sad mystery to me, why I was no good at football and Dad was great. And and I wasn't good at running or you know any sort of throwing sports at all. And really, to be honest, when I when we started rowing, my dad started us off rowing and. You know, I was pretty rubbish at that too. You know, very awkward in the boat, leaning away from the rigger. And, you know, um, there were people that moved much better than me. But what happened was um, that my dad employed an international rower, this guy, Jim Clark, who came to the school. And he, um, he literally really took me under his wing. And whether it was because I was the son of his boss, uh, but he used to talk to me about international rowing regattas and races that his crew had, because he rode for the Thames Tradesman before then. And he used to talk about racing the Russians and the East Germans, you know, going to Ostend and we were half a length down and we put in a big burn. And he, he just talked about what he did and, and he treated me like I was a kind of, you know, a normal person, not some kind of, you know, geeky person who couldn't row. So I had been brought up into the sort of in world of international rowing 
from when I was 14 years of age. And in fact, when I was when I was 16, I went to see Jim. He was in that that British eight that won a silver medal, the first silver medal for a while in, in Lucerne in 74. You know, I, 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 yeah, I hiked out there to see him win that medal and camped out there. So I had always thinking of myself as good, I'd always had this this vision of international rowing and what it would be like to do that. Um, and I think physically, Jim put us through circuit training and all the rest of it. I, I, I got better at rowing through joining a rowing club. And then the, the, the path to doing this sort of hair race seems, you know, quite clear. Mm. Um, we had Jim Clark as a coach. And that was really when I thought, I, you know, I can do this. It's, it's almost as if by meeting this person who talked openly about his experiences, it almost normalized it as something that you could not just aspire to, but do. And then as, as your physicality and your technical ability developed, it became the natural sort of next step. Yeah. I think that's well, well put Aaron, you know, it's, it was, um, it was just a normal, you know, it was just a normal conversation and yet it was magical. It really was, you know, um, to somebody who, um, I, you know, and I suppose in one way, um, you know, I I was looking for a, some, a sport to be good at or something, you know, to do. And this this seemed to hold the magic and it seemed to ha have a pathway that mm -hmm. I could progress. Um, so there wasn't, you know, there was no, um, you, I mean, Jim had been in the Olympics. Jim was in the 72 Olympics, um, which was... But you know they didn't make the final. Um, came seventh in that in that competition. But so there was no sort of uh, profile of gold medal rowers or silver medal rowers or anything like that that there is today that you can you can follow and say you know I, I'm going to do that. I mean the pathway was very much you know being international and race racing other international crews. We're aware now that there are there are different pathways into the sport, and there are, there is there's clear signposting. If you if you have what it takes to be an Olympian, there's clear signposting as to as to how to do it. There was a structure there, but it was would it be fair to say it was somewhat ad hoc in terms of well, you're fast, you're 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 our, our guys. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, I, I think another advantage that we had was we had this guy uh, called David Tanner, who's, who's now Sir David Tanner, um, who was performance director for British Rowing for, for many years. But he was our coach. He was then a history teacher at, at Ealing School. And he pretty much shepherded us through. Um, so, you know, we had a pathway the year... The year after juniors, the, the target was the Whitehall Cup at Henley. I mean, we won the Visitors' Cup at Henley as juniors, which was a university-class event um, as schoolboys. Um, and the next year then was the Whitehall Cup, which was the club event, which we won. And then the following year um, was um, trying to get selection in the World Championships. Mm. So and, and that was marginal you know we only just made that but we did make it and came 10th but we were young and given a chance no no i was just going to ask because how old were you when you were at the world championships so i was 20. from what i understand that would be very few 20 year olds at the moment are racing at senior international level 
certainly not in GB. Is that right? Is that has that been a real change? Yeah, I think I think most times, you know, twenty year olds get there's a better way of saying this, get get, you know, booted down to the under twenty threes. Um unless they're prodigies like Constantine Leludis or someone like that. Um hmm. That, that can just force their way in whatever sort of age they are. But um, there, there wasn't that under-23 structure. And to be quite honest, um, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't too much competition. I mean, we were pretty serious about how we trained. Um, and, you know, we, we were a, a fast crew. We were good enough to beat some of the international crews. And, and we were good enough to beat anyone in the UK. Um, and, um, you know, the, the people that were better than us, like with Jim Clark and John Roberts, who, who were quicker than us, they were in the pair. So, you know, we didn't have competition there. Lewin and I, were we never we never hit the heights. We were club rowers at Agecroft and Lewin also elsewhere, but largely Agecroft for me. We worked out recently in a, a chat with, with Jez Moore that, that we averaged about 24 hours a week of training as just club rowers. What was your training like then? Because I, what I'm, what I, I want to also talk about later is you. You must have combined this with like having a day job, which most most Olympic athletes don't now because they because of the lottery funding. Yeah, well, um, I you know it was it was quite a big deal to train twice a day. Um, I think we you know from juniors we would we sort of do something like nine sessions a week. And when we, you know, when we were coming up, so that year that I was 20, we were probably doing um, between 10 and 12 sessions a week. And, you know, your estimate of, of 24 hours training would, would not be far off. I mean, all of us then were at, at college, you know, it was, and, and, you know, I was doing a history course, so it wasn't, it's not like demanding like a, you know, PhD in medicine or, or engineering. So, you know, there was time to train. Uh, it got much more difficult later on when, you know, I had a job. Well, not really having it, have, getting a job and teaching wasn't so difficult. It was, um, you know, when you get a job and you get into a relationship and you have family and kids, that that's when things started to get really, really difficult. But that was a, a way off in the future. Oh, it all sounds horribly familiar. With that training, and we've we've just talked we've just mentioned that obviously there's a very clear set of pathways through now for for you know going towards international rowing, but you're you're also describing a structure that might seem slightly ad hoc by today's standards. But winning the visitors, then the Y fold, then the next step, then the next step. There's a lot of value in that progression because you're because you're you're slowly elevating your standard all the time and 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 consolidating what you've done. Yeah, you know, the, you, you can see a definite pathway. I think, you know, we, we borrowed a lot. There, there was Bob Janicek's crews that had success. You know, they won at Lucerne Silver. They, they nearly won the Olympics, but the East Germans just got them, you know, in the last 250. So there, there was a kind of training pattern of stuff that we do, and we thought we trained pretty hard. I mean, of course, by today's standards, we didn't train really hard. Um, and I guess, you know, when we were that young, it, it, it wasn't, you didn't want to break us really. Uh, you know, I think people that go now down to the squad at Caversham, 
you know, I talked to one athlete who, who went down to Cavisham, Matt Gottrell, and, you know, the thing he was most proud of as a youngster was that he never missed a session in his first year, but he definitely determined to keep his head down. I mean, we, we were doing a programme that was that we thought was really hard, but it, in, we never really looked at, you know, so what were the East Germans doing? What if we were full-time professional athletes? You know, what kind of mileage or kilometres would we would be doing each week? How would you put, what would, a, what would a given week, what might it look like? So we had three land sessions a week, um, mm-hmm. most weeks. Um, we did four sessions at the weekend. Um, we did a, a couple of early mornings in the week, maybe three early mornings sometime. And, um, and that was, you know, that was pretty much the, the pattern of the training. Mm. And, and land sessions were, of course, kind of not rowing machines. There were circuits and weights. And... Yeah, yeah. There were, so there, there was a rowing machine um, that we used. Um, and we remember, you know, it's, it was called the guessing ergometer. And uh, it was this big orange thing with a huge big pole that sort of, um, and, and it had a, a, a weight resistance that you, you had to sort of get the right number of grams on it for the test. And you did a six minute test and the wheel revolved a certain number of times, you know, depending how, how good you were. And so, you know, a good score for uh, six minutes was, um, what was a good score for six minutes? Um, uh, something like 5,000 revolutions. Um, and, and really, there was only one or two of these rowing machines in the country. So, and, and, so um, and this was down in London, was it? Yeah, this was down in London. So we had one at the Rowing Association. I don't know if Leander had one, but I'm not sure if anyone else had one at all. Um, so you, you did tests on these machines, but therefore most of the land stuff. So we, we did weight training we did weight training very bad um badly so our backs were like this you know as opposed to like that lifting weights we used to row like that but but basically they were all you know the the looking at photographs of us lifting weights it was shocking really but we used to do um heavy weights um and we used to do commando circuits which were great throwing ourselves over wall bars and doing all sorts of stuff like that um yeah we used to train hard but uh no rowing machines at all uh, apart from the odd test that that chimes with something jez has mentioned about it doesn't always have to be on a rowing machine if you're a rower you you can do other things you can do circuits you know you can do cross fitness you know go for a run it's not necessarily going to kill you so as you're stacking all of this training up and you're and you're progressing through this this pathway and you can see the 1980 Olympics coming where you, you took bronze in the Coxus Four, if, if my research is correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the Olympics that Britain nearly didn't attend because of the whole, um, the Eastern Bloc and the and all of the politics that were surrounding that. Were you firstly, were you aware that the Olympics was coming and you had a shot at it? And, and then secondly, but and sort of parenthetically, were you aware of the chatter around, are we going, are we, are we not? And, and how did that kind of play out? Yeah, well, I, I think my memory is in terms of the Olympics and rowing was that, you know, certainly it was out there. You know, Jim Clark, uh, my sort of hero PE teacher, he rowed in 72 and 76. 
And, you know, I'd seen all the stories of the kit they got in 76 and just, you know, it, it seemed, you know, like magical, really. So um, when we decided to carry on and, and try and get senior international status, um, there was a kind of time period which was up to the Moscow Olympics. But the Olympics relatively now in terms of the guys at Caversham, I mean, you know, things are a four year cycle. It just wasn't like that. I mean, basically the world championships were really, really important. And, and, um, and you took, um, you, you took each world championships as an end in itself. Um, really almost as important as the Olympics. Um, and I, and I think that's a, that's a different sort of take from what it is now. But um, we we won bronze medals. So we had a new guy uh, join our crew um, in 1978. One, one step down, he was better than us, a guy called Dave Townsend. Yeah. And he'd rode in an Olympics already. And, and he helped us go into medal status. So we won a medal in 78 in, in New Zealand on Lake Carapiro. And then we repeated that and got another bronze medal in 79. So, you know, the Olympics for us, we were, we were looking to, to, you know, go for another bronze medal, really. We never had any designs on being a gold, you know, I, I didn't, I never thought I was good enough to be a gold medalist. I mean, that was kind of, talk about that a little later, but hmm. Um, throughout that year of 1980 with, you know, Afghanistan over the, the winter of 79 and, and spring of 80, um, you, you began to hear um, messages coming out of the White House that, you know, sanctions and particularly sporting sanctions were going to be used. And Jimmy Carter wanted um, the athletes of the West not to go to the Olympics. Uh, frankly, it seemed very unreal. Um, and, and, and then all of a sudden it got very serious. So, you know, there were um, noises from from our sort of government. Mrs. Thatcher was the prime minister then and um, the minister for sport. Um, I think it was Hector Monroe, a rugby player. Mm. You know, they, they were calling for athletes not to go. And, and so then, then there was this situation where it looked like, oh my God, you know, there's there's a real chance that you know our Olympics are going to be taken away from us, which I think it, it politicised a whole generation of athletes. I mean, you know, because um, th there were meetings of the, the council of the Rowing Association, we packed into these rooms at Hammersmith. And, you know, to leave the administrators in no doubt that, you know, we absolutely wanted to go and we didn't think there should be a boycott. Um, there were debates in the House of Commons that we attended with our tracksuits on. Um, we, we made, you know, people like Colin Moynihan, who was Cox in the British Eight, he was very active in terms of organising organizing meetings and organising meetings of groups of athletes. You know, meantime, we were getting... Um, I didn't get it myself, but one of the guys in my crew did. He got, you know, hate mail of a picture of burnt babies and things um, saying, what are you doing? You know, you're causing this if you go to the Olympics. So the, the, the pressure ramped up and, and there were two key votes. There, were vote, there was a vote of the, the rowing council, um, which um, voted in favour of, of rowing going as a sport. 
Um, and then there was the vote of the British Olympic Association. Um, and, you know, and the, the, the pressure was really on to, to stop the, the British Olympic Association sending athletes. But because they didn't take any government money, you know, they, they weren't beholden to the government. And, you know, Sir Dennis Follows was, you know, a great um, ambassador as well. And, um, and the BOA voted for us to go. And in the end, only four, four sports decided not to go. So, you know, the hockey players, um, they were left out in the cold. I don't know if they organised themselves in, in, in time... Uh, shooting, equestrian and sailing. Um, and rowing, you know, being out of that genre of sport, you know, posh sports, it could have easily been been won. But, um, you know, it really politicised me in, in, in that, in that sort of, that year. So there was, there was a lot going on. So yeah. when you say it politicised you, do you mean that you felt that, okay, as a sportsman, I have a political role, or do you, did you feel sort of like actually no sport and politics should be completely separate? Um, yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, I, I mean, you know, I'm I'm getting twenty two. What am I? Twenty two, twenty three. Um, so I'd been at university. I've been studying history and politics. Um, I I didn't really have any political affiliations. I kind of began to look on the establishment as it was the establishment. To be fair, we were being supported by some establishment figures, but, you know, by and large, you know, Rowings, um, I think it was President Chris Davidge, you know, he was against us going. Um, and, um, and, and so we were up against the establishment. And so I think politicised me then is there was this sort of block called the establishment. Um, and, and they were trying to stop us going. And so, um, and, and that was a route I followed in my own political life. So it made me, you know, I became um, not long after an athlete representative. So um, I used to sit um, on the British Olympic Association as, um, you know, rep on the council of the British Olympic Association representing athletes. And then, you know, we got our own athlete council. I did that role for world rowing on FISA. Um, so I, I became, you know, uh, really sort of strident in that an athlete voice should be heard. A sporting life, even an elite professional, is, is a very, very small window of time and a very small window of opportunity. And I think it's very difficult for politicians to ask sports people to give up something that they wouldn't necessarily give up themselves when the window of opportunity is that small. Having an athlete voice on these committees where things are decided is, is absolutely vital because unless you had mobilised in the way that you're talking about, you might have ended up like hockey and equestrian and, and not actually gone to your first Olympics. Yeah, exactly so. Um, you know, there, there were examples of, you know, your, your friends, um, athletes from other countries who, you know, like the whole German Olympic Association, because it's funded by the government, they, they decided not to go. Um, the um, Americans pulled out. Um, the, the Kiwis, I think, were told um, as they were getting on the plane that they weren't to come to Europe, that they weren't going. 
um, and the Australians heard they were some they were in a plane over Singapore and they heard that they were going, you know, thirty thousand feet above Singapore. Um, mm. So it was it was quite dramatic, to be quite honest. So you're heading to your first Olympics. Loon and I have talked about uh, doping in sport on the on the pod. We've we've talked about Jurgen's past in the in in the GDR. We've talked about doping in rowing. It's in Moscow, Eastern Bloc countries. Germany weren't there. Um, East Germany weren't there. Were you aware of the reputation for enhancement that that was, or, or, or did it not even cross your mind that that might be going on? That that kind of state sponsored. Well, you know, I. I I sort of, um, I knew about doping from, uh, I mean, we all did. Um, you know, I was very, very close to Jim Clark and, and he'd been racing, you know, that, that was, that was a really good tradesman for, and it was a great eight they had in Montreal. And, um, you, you, you kind of knew and, and suspected that the East German athletes were using steroids and people had come out from the Eastern Bloc, you know, I think Bob Janacek had been working in, in Czechoslovakia and he knew, you know, what was available. So th there wasn't any secret. I mean, it was, it was kind of the, so we kind of had a tag. We tagged ourselves the best in the West because, you know, the guys that were, that were winning were from the GDR. Um, they had a fantastic four and from the Soviet Union. And so the, the the assumption was, and you know, uh, it's more than just an assumption because in 1980, we went to Mannheim Regatta and we raced the Soviet Union for, and and they beat us by a street a long way. Um, we came second, and we beat other decent crews, so we weren't going that badly. Um, anyway, um, about six weeks, it, it was just before Lucerne Regatta. And um, there were rumours that the um, Russian team wasn't turning up, and or the Soviet team. That there'd been two positive that they tested, they surprise tested at Mannheim. Two Soviet athletes, one guy from the four that we raced, a guy called Sergei Pozdiv, and another female athlete, and both of them were tested positive for steroids. So when this came out this was just before lucerne regatta the the russian the soviet boat trailer was at lucerne by the lake but the the soviet team didn't go they missed that regatta just before the olympics and um and what they did they just told this guy positive you know um well i i don't even think they told him he was tested positive for dope because we saw him around the olympics but they just swapped somebody else into the four for him so um, the Russians, I think they said it was a fruit deficiency and that's why these athletes were on steroids. So I got in the post that year, I got a medal, a Mannheim medal, the one because they were disqualified. So we got the medal for coming first in Mannheim and, and it dropped in a brown paper envelope through the, through the front door. <laughs> so, you know, it was it was a very real thing. So we, we knew they were they were using you know, illegal doping and stuff. But it was kind of, it was just part of the furniture, like the Berlin Wall was part of the furniture. I mean, it was just a fact of life. And um, 
you know, I, I still used to, here I worshipped East German rowers. Um, you know, I had a, one particular hero, a guy called Siegfried Brietzka, who was stroke of the East German four, and I was stroke of the R4. So I just used to look at him and think, that guy's amazing. Um, so it, it was a fact of life that you lived with, but we, we saw ourselves as the best in the West. Did that recognition that this is going on, did that inform your decision or your, your realisation, we can win the bronze here and that will be almost like our, our gold medal? Yeah, well, the, the East Germans that, that took... I, I did an interview, actually, with Siggy Bretzka years after for, for when I wrote Olympic Obsession. And uh, it was great, really. He came down from the north of Germany to um, to an interview in Leipzig with the, the house of his old coach. Your Weisseg. And, you know, I asked him about drugs there and he was really, he was very combative. He basically said, you know, we were a small country. Um, we were up against, you know, the might of the West capitalism. He, he was a bit of an unreconstructed socialist. And, um, you know, and anyway, everyone in the West was doing it. Um, so, you know, that, that was, that was kind of what he said, but, um, Really, um, they they were. I put them on a kind of pedestal, the East Germans, because you know I remember the first time in '74 when they rode as a crew. Jim Clark had told me, "Look, look at this tasty new four at Lucerne, the World Championships." That's the first time I'd seen them, and we were racing the same four six years later. You know, I had a picture of them on my bedroom wall. Mm. So they were the, the creme de la creme, the sort of, you know, Greg Raven Pinson, if you want to use that analogy. Um, or they were like Murray and Bond, you know. So, I, you know, I guess did people that race Murray and Bond think they were going to beat them? Probably not. So, you know, they were racing for something else. Uh, and the crew that came second was the Rush. they you know, got the silver medal, was the Russian crew that beat us in... Um, in Mannheim and we'd actually beaten them the year before they they'd had a bit of a bad row uh, the Czechs that we assume also were on sort of sponsored state sponsored doping maybe they didn't do it as well as the East Germans um, they'd beaten us the year before to get the silver we'd beaten them the year previous to that um, so they were you know and the Romanians they were our big rivals it's it's a fact of life it's part of the furniture you have to deal with it you've got to your first Olympics there's not a, not an expectation. That's the wrong word. But on pathway athletes now, there's a realization perhaps that they will go to the Olympics, and it's part of their journey. Was there any point when you were flying out, or when you got there, or when you first got on the water for a paddle, where you went, "I only started this sport X number of years ago, and I'm now an, at an Olympic Games." I know the World Championships were seen as being as important then, but the Olympics is still special. Did it hit you at any point? Yeah, I think there were lots of things that hit, you know, at various times. I mean, I think, you know, one of the great things is getting your kit, um, your Olympic kit. And I knew what the team had got in Montreal in 76. And basically, all the spon a lot of the sponsors pulled out because of the government pressure. So we, we had, you know, the, the amount of kit we got was much, 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 much less. Yeah, you know, compared to what they got in 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 '76, so you know there was a realization get getting your kit. I think there was a realization 
going to Russia. It's the first time I've been to Russia, into Soviet Union. I think when when you go into, you arrive in any Olympic country, and the British team now they do recce, so they they've already been to Tokyo. They they did a recce trip to Tokyo. They all went out to Rio. They they kind of do the familiarisation before the Olympics. I mean, we didn't do that. So arriving, you know, arriving into um, so I I sat on from the airport in on on the way into Moscow. Um, we we were met by there were these um, young people who could speak English, and I was sat next to one. And, you know, she told me she lived in the same apartment block as Leonid Brezhnev, who was the, yeah. The, 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 the premier at the time. Yeah, so she was obviously quite important. And then we, we were driving past, um, we were driving past these enormous tank trap things that are by the side of the road. And, and, and it marks the furthest point of the German advance on, into Moscow. And and she said to me at that point, you know, what do you like? What do you think of Germans? And I'm kind of like, <laughs> well, they're all right, you know. Sort of. Um, she and she said, I hate them. And I, you know, I kind of said, oh, that's quite strong. She said, I hate them for what they did to our country. So you know, you were already in in a sense of this is this was something quite different and. Um, and then you're, the, the moment that you step into the Olympic Village, um, because I think the, the British team don't go to the Olympic Village now. They, they tend to stay in hotels away. They've got their own controlled training environment. But, you know, walking through the metal detectors into the Olympic Village, um, e- even though it was, you know, there, there were no national flags flying at the flagpoles, there were no ceremonies to welcome you because of that, you know, the BOA, you sort of went, you know, went right down on these ceremonies. That that moment of stepping into the Olympic Village was just amazing, and and um, and likewise, you know, we'd seen literally, you'd seen athletes. Uh, I mean, uh, Alberto Wanterina was a Cuban runner who had won. I think whether he won in he won in seventy six, he won four hundred and eight hundred. You know, and you'd be sitting down at a table and Alberto Wanterina would come and sit two or three seats away from you. And it'd be like, oh my God, there's Alberto Wanterina. It was literally, you know, it was it was that that kind of stuff. Um so um and, and I think to an extent we were we were a bit I certainly was a bit starry-eyed about the whole thing. I mean, you know, we really messed up our first heat, and I I think I was, you know, quite culpable in that. Um so, you know, we came in at the back of the field. It was probably one of the worst rows we'd ever had. And I think that was in part due to the whole, you know, pressure of the Olympics and, you know, looking around and doing all this kind of stuff that you're told not to do. Was it? Was there a sense maybe of rowing the occasion rather than the race that you, you knew you had to? Uh, well, I... You know, I, I remember for that first heat, I, I was reading a book and I was reading a book, you know quite close to actually going on the water. It was it was almost that I didn't want to, you know, be in the moment and because I was I was nervous. Um and I was trying to keep my nerves controlled and, and I didn't really get into it, you know, because you have to have a certain amount of arousal to to compete effectively. So, you know, um didn't make that mistake for the repercharge, which was one of our best races ever. Um 
where I was fully in the moment and really cognizant, you know, we had to win that race because um, if there was a crosswind, they'd only take four crews in the final. So we had to be one of those four. So we had to win the repechage. Mm-hmm. So to be fully in the moment, um, and, and that was the lesson that, that we slash I'd learned from that underperformance in the first heat. I was just thinking, you you were talking about almost having to have that bad race in the heat to actually bring you back to it. Do you, do you think that's an advantage that a lot of the modern rowers have in that they have this enormous structure and enormous history behind them of people saying, right, when you get, or probably yourself saying to them, when you get there, you're going to feel like, a kid in a sweet shop mm. um, and you're going to, you're going to want to run around and you're going to want to eat ice cream and I don't know, try and say hello to all the gymnasts or whatever it is. Uh-huh. But you've actually really, really got to sort of rein it in. I mean, sort of, it, it, it's that like one of the big advantages of having, I suppose, a tradition of Olympic rowing that, guys like yourself started well yeah see i'm not sure about this in in, i think if you can be in the competition be in the moment i don't think there's anything to stop you enjoying um being you know all that stuff with the opening ceremony um i I, you know i think there's a if you're racing the next day i think there's probably you know a good argument for not going to the opening ceremony i mean we we didn't go in in 84 to the opening ceremony and we couldn't go in um in, in 1980 because the, the, the athletes uh, weren't marching in the opening ceremony because of because of all the sanctions and so on. But, um, you know, there's there's no point pretending that it's just, it, it's not a fantastic place to be and there's not these, these people around. I, you know, I think you've got to, you've, you've got to enjoy being there at the same time as remembering why you're there. But, you know, that, that doesn't mean wiping off all that sort of stuff. Um, and I think, you know, there's a bit of, maybe there's a bit too much of, of, of um, you know, you, you can't enjoy things, you can't look around, you, you can't, you know, enjoy the moment. Because I think if you do that properly, it brings out a good performance equally if you do it badly and then it, then it can have, you know, detrimental effects. But I, I'd say be in the moment because it is it's fantastic, anyone being in the first Olympics. Hmm. Yeah. So, so I mean, it, it's essentially, it's a mental skill. Yeah. The, the, you, you've got to start practising from before you get there. Yeah. A- absolutely. Um, you know, and I, and I think people have, you know, I've talked to a fair few Olympic rowers, Olympic athletes, and, and, you know, there's a lot of different views about it. Um, you know, I think the Steve Redgrave approach was to have completely focused, blinkered vision um, and shut out most things. And, you know, and the, that was helped in the British team by the fact they stayed in hotels. So they kind of bubbled off and they've maybe gone, they've maybe gone slightly too far the other way where everything is shuttered and it's, we'll get to the gold and then, and then we'll see what happens after that. I remember Victoria Pendleton, when she got her gold, she was kind of, is that it? Because maybe she hadn't been allowed to fully absorb the impact of actually just getting there in the first place is 
massive. It's a huge human life experience and you can absorb it without it knocking your performance down. As you've just shown, you, you had a bad race because you maybe went too far one way, but it helped you to get up for the repechage, which then got you through to the final. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and there's quite a few um, athletes that go after the gold medal. Is that it? Is that all it is? You know, mm. um, which it's an interesting subject. You know, I, I, I was talking with Kath Bishop, who's written this book, The Long uh, the long win. The um, long win, yeah. Yeah, and she's got some interesting thoughts on that. And um, and I, I did a chat with Adam Creek, who's, uh, you know, Canadian gold medalist from the 2008 Beijing crew, and, you know, about him winning his, his first first world championships. And he's basically, you know, he's got a medal and he's walking around in his Lycra onesie feeling top of the world back through the streets of Seville. And then, you know, quite soon after he's got, you know, well, what is it? What, you know, what is this all there is? Is that it? Can you still remember the race? Um, yeah, it's really interesting with me and race memories. I can remember, um, I can remember being on the start of the race. I don't have any recollection of the warm up or the pre-race talk. Um, I remember, um, I remember, you know, you used to have these burns. You used to race differently then. I mean, you you would go. Um, I, I think today crews tend to push in the rhythm. You know, they're they're going at thirty seven or whatever they're, they're at, and they kind of have a push in the rhythm. I mean, we used to do burns. We used to come up, and I remember doing one of those. I remember coming to the finish and knowing that we were in third place. Um. And I remember the finish of the race, Dave Townsend said, you know, thanks, Crossy, that's the one I wanted to finish with. So we knew we won a medal then. Uh, but but memory does play tricks on you. I, You know, for the 84 games, for the heat, I, I was 100% convinced that we led the whole race and rode away from the Americans. And, um, you know, that that's what I used to tell people. And then... I think I was telling this story to Adrian Ellison, who was our cops then, and he said, we didn't lead, you know, um, we led off the start, but the Americans rode through us. And I was like, no, they didn't. And and then, so basically said, well, here's the race on YouTube, watch it. <laughs> so it was, you know, I do remember, so I, you know, um, I, so I, I, I'm careful, particularly as a historian, I'm, I'm now careful about what I remember about races um, and, you know, so sometimes it's good to tell stories of them, but my memory of races is, um, is interesting. When you, when you took the bronze, which is, which is massive, you have kind of, I guess you must have like a, like a, you've reached a peak. You're going to have a bit of a, of a, of a slump or a, a reevaluation. Did you think, right, world championships next year or next race is this, or did you start thinking, right, bronze now, 1984 because you've already said you didn't think in terms of four-year cycles then uh, no didn't think of 1984 whatsoever um i mean i think it registered that the, the olympics were on the west coast but um you know i think pretty much that it was the next year what are we going to do next year and um three of us decided to carry on dave townsend stopped we rode with our teacher um Jim Clark, who came in for Dave Townsend. And, you know, we had one or two good races, but we had a disastrous world championships. And it was the 
it was the first time in my rowing sort of career, really, that, you know, things hadn't gone just up, 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 up. Things had crashed and burned. Um, and it was really, really hard, mm. particularly the more so because, you know, I was rowing with my teacher who, you know, I thought was a fantastic rower. Um, and and it just didn't work. So, um, th- and that, that um, result induced... Um, a complete shake-up. So, the, the, you know, there was now this idea, right, we now need to have a national rowing squad and um, and have athletes. This was the start of that type of thing developing. Um, our coach stopped coaching. Um, so our crew fell apart in that way. Um, one of the guys, Ian, stopped rowing for a while, you know, took a year out. Um, and, you know, I... Um, so I'd lost my coach that had been coaching me since juniors and I decided in really, um, I think it was Richard Aylin who came to a meeting, uh, came to see me at my house to try and persuade me to row um, the, that year in, in 82. Um, he said, you're cutting your nose off to spite your face because I decided to go and join the, the sculling squad under Mike Sprackley. Mm. Um, because I thought there's a group of young guys that come seventh, in um, in the quads, Redgrave was there. Uh, heard a lot about him as a as a junior. Um, guy called Adam Cliff from Hollingworth Lake, um, and um, and and so yeah, I, I went. I, I sort of just decided right, I'm going to scull. So I, I got got a sculling boat and and tried to make my way in the sculling squad. Was that was that considered like oh once you've gone over there to two oars you're not coming back I mean it 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 doesn't it almost seems as though that was the feeling that I had when I was just starting out in the sport that they're, they were almost two completely different sports rather than yeah it's like different well I think if you the same point if you talk to Steve Redgrave. You mustn't believe everything he says, but if you read his book, you know, the thing he said, the experience. So I, I thought sculling was rowing, you see. So I just tend to smack it in. I, I had no sort of finesse or anything that you need for that type of boat, you know, fast moving boat. So, you know, Steve wrote, um, you know, I, I, uh, I made a vow never to row behind Martin Cross again. Yeah. Which, you know. <laughs> To, to be fair, you know, we 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 made the final, um, which was an, a real achievement in itself. We were well off the back in the final, we're a long way down. But, you know, we were, I don't think there, a British quad didn't make the final for almost another 30 years after that. It was, it was an un, unenviable record to have. But um, Scullers... The whole thing around the sculling squad was Mike Spracklin and the way he coached. Mm. So, you know, I learned an awful lot from Mike. Um, and, and you know, so that was probably a good move going there. Um, it was probably a good move um, because, you know, it put me in the frame for the Olympics in 84. Um, so he wanted me in his crew, despite the fact I was an argumentative, you know. Nothing wrong with that. We actually had, at Agecroft, we had Peter Holmes as our coach um, for a year. Oh, yeah. And and he very much comes from a Spracklin school of, of, of rowing and sculling. 
we wrote a very GB style profile. We did very, we tried to take from the squad into club level, the high volume approach. And when Pete arrived with this kind of Spracklin sting and float idea, a few members of our our squad, and I'm not going to say who they are, said, yeah, but, you know, British rowing stroke profile, Steve Redgrave, five gold medals. And he actually showed us some some footage of, of Redgrave in the, in the 80s. And it's a very, very Spracklin style. It's very mm. dynamic. It looks long and slow because he's such a big man, but it's very dynamic at the catch. And it's incredibly brutal with the, with the leg drive. Working with Mike Spracklin, did that add to your technical palette? Did it change your approach? Yeah, hugely. Um, I mean, he just made you think about the sport in a completely different way. Um, you know, of his analogies, his technical analogies. Um, and um, it was, as you say, the sting and float was his his kind of maxim, you know, like, like Muhammad Ali. Um, I think in part that technique that he adopted, I mean... It's interesting, really, because, you know, it obviously started out with Macons, Macon spoons, and and it's and it's difficult to do the same thing as um, as, as that with uh, choppers. But um, if you look at the eights he coached in um, uh, Barcelona or the, the Canadian eight that won in 2008, um, and the, the, even the one, you know, the world champions in 2002, 2003, um, or the Canadian eight that got silver in, in 2012, you know, came through the British eight. They're very, very front orientated, even, even with cleaver blades, mm. which is, you know, a very much a hallmark of the Spracklin style. Yeah, we, we found it a hard transition. It, when it clicked and it worked in an eight, um, well, the, the thing, you know, one of the things about the leg drive, so in, in the Olympics of 84, um, you know, Mike, Mike would, would say you just need to drive your legs quickly. So in, in, in the Olympics of 84, the heat in the final, you can see me, I'm driving my legs quickly and I'm not connected properly with the back. You know, you know anyone can push their legs down fast. So I'm kind of, I'm in wham and then like that. I'm, I'm rowing like that, which is different. Uh, to say the way Andy Holmes was rowing in a way. Mm. Uh, and I didn't row like that the next year in 85 when I did the pair. Um, but I think, you know, Mike was Mike saying, right, you need to drive your legs down. So you basically did what Mike said. Uh, but I, I didn't technically have my <laughs> load my back up properly enough. Yeah. Uh, one of Pete's big things wasn't just the leg drive. It was trying to get the core linkage of the back in the right place so that when you did drive your legs, it transferred through the pin to, to moving the boat. Because otherwise your, your back opens out and all of that wonderful work you've just done doesn't connect with the, with the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, with, with regards to that 84 Olympics, it's been, I think Lewin would, would probably agree with me, it's been overshadowed is the wrong word, but maybe positioned as the start of Steve's run to five. Yeah. Which is pretty unfair because it's a momentous achievement in its own right and life-changing for everyone else in the, in the crew. If you're an Olympic champion, you're, you're in the history books forever. And from what we've read, there was a lot of politics around British rowing in the time. Steve's been fairly blunt about his relationship with uh, Penny Shooter. Yeah. Um, and it appeared to be quite a combative relationship. Were you aware of this jockeying for position? I mean, can you talk us through the creation of that crew and how it kind of came together? 
Yeah, so the year started out with me, you know, Penny Shooter was going to run the squad. Um, you know, 1983 hadn't been successful. The only crew to make the final was a, was a Cox 4 that I was in. Um, but we, we came sixth, so it hadn't been a successful year. Um, the coaching team that year were kicked out, Rusty Williams, David Tanner, and Penny Shooter was going to run the squad. So, and the, there was this thing that you had to be in the squad. You, you know, you couldn't be a club crew to get selected or that, that type of stuff. So I spent the winter trying to fight that. I formed an international oarsman's union. It was called the IRSC, International Rose and Scholars Club. And I spent the, you know, the winter going around trying to persuade people to come to meetings. We, we got a meeting with about a hundred or so rowers, um, where it where it formed. So I was fighting the hierarchy, fighting Penny Shooter. So um, the the thing was, I was in a pair with John Beatty, who I'd rowed with at Moscow, and um, and for better or worse, we were kind of put in in what was called the fours group. So the eights group was a kind of group of people that had rowed with Graham Hall in the 1980 Olympics. They got silver medal. They kind of knew how to row. They were very slick and good boat movers. And, and the fours group, Cox fours group was for guys that just hoofed it. And, um, you know, without, so, so, um, and, and we had, there were three pairs in that. I stroke one, John Beatty. And all I wanted to do that year was row in a pair with John, um, you know, that, that, that's what I wanted to do. I had no designs further than that. Um, there was another pair with a guy called Richard Budget stroking uh, with his mate Tom Cadu Hudson. And there was a further pair with Andy Holmes stroking with a guy called Paul Wensley. So w w we were sort of coached by Mike Spracklin, who at the same time was coaching Steve Redgrave in his single. So, you know, um, I'd almost... I, that, not, not so much with Mike. Or, so I did have arguments with Mike, but more with Penny Shooter. I mean, you know, she had me by the scruff of the neck with ready to hit me at one one occasion. Um, so she was a shy and retiring character then? No, well, I think I wound her up that, that much, really. Um, and, and so Steve wanted to do the single. We were in the three pairs. And, and the, the way, the only way I could do the pair was to just, try to win every piece, which of course wasn't possible. But it meant, you know, we we all we trained together the whole time. So we were basically doing competitive training in pairs. Um and and then um so so the the sort of we got closer to what would be selection. Uh we were in Zabaudia training camp and um we raced um at a sort of selection regatta. John and I won the Coxless pairs. Um, funnily enough, um, th there was a kind of wind shadow on the course and, um, in the warm up for the Cox pairs race, um, uh, budget and Kadu Hudson overturned their pair. Um, and they, they all, they all fell in. They're all swimming in the water. So Andy Holmes, he was really clever. So he basically, cause they had a better lane number. He rode over and took their lane number out and told Adrian Ellison, put, put that lane number in our bow because it's a better lane. So, so they, they, uh, they won. And then I think Steve won the single. And then the next, the next, um, 
the next day we're all sort of going down for an outing, but it's all this talk, 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 you know, who do you want to row with? And Spracklin and Shooter made us write down, you know, the crews we wanted to row in. And so I wrote down, I want to do a pair with John Beatty and, you know, and Red Graven is, is single and, and the other four. And, um, and then they called me into the, um, the, the, the Land Rover and said, you know, why haven't you put down, you want to row with Steve Redgrave? And I said, I, I've no desire to row with Steve because he wants to do a single skull and I don't want to row with him. If, he, if that's what he wants to do, he can do a single skull, but why should I want to row with him? I said, well, everyone else has put down, they want to row in a four with Stephen. So I said, well, I don't. So, and then, so I was really argumentative, you know, really. Um, and, and then they kind of said, right, they, they came out of the van and said, basically, okay, we're going to do, um, we, we're going to have this four and it's going to have um, uh, me in, budgeting it's going to have the three strokes me budgeting holmes and then we're going to have um tom could hudson in the bow so and that's who mike wanted in the bow so tom was had won a bronze medal with budge in 81 and um i said well i'm not rowing in the four if that's what you're doing because i want john Beatty in the four because he's got three bronze medals and he's better and um I'm, I want to row with him. So if that's the four, I'm not going to row in it. You know, you can't, it's really, this is all taking place in in the, in the morning, you know, by the lake in Zabaldia. So then they went in the Land Rover again. Then they came out and said, you know, right, we're going to do three 1,500-metre pieces with di the different bowmen in the four, and we'll take the fastest one. So then the other guys, like Andy Holmes, were saying, what's the point of that? Just put in who you want. So we never ended up doing that. So basically, the four that went out that that day, eventually, it had Mike put Steve Redgrave at stroke, had Andy at three, Budge at two, and I think John Beatty was in the bow seat. And, you know, and Mike took me out in the launch with him, and he was going, you know, this is a good four, isn't it? It's got Steve at stroke. And that, that was the only time he stroked it. But um, so then what happened was... We, we we rode in a four with with John Beatty in the bow seat. So there's 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 the three of us that were in the Olympic four. I'm in the stroke seat, and we go to Mannheim Regatta. And there were two days on Mannheim Regatta there, the Saturday and Sunday. So on the Saturday at Mannheim, we uh, came up against the silver medalists from the World Championships the previous year, the Germans. And basically the Germans led us off and, you know, we were, we were quite slow starters and we moved well through the second half and we had a great sprint finish and we just got in front of the Germans by about, you know, one by about half a length or something like that. It's a close verdict. And we knew Redgrave was in his single racing Colby and Carpina and then he, he come third. But after we'd won, none of us wanted to have... Steve in the boat it was just like you know let him stay in his single because we've done this thing it's good enough so anyway the red grave got put in the boat that evening John Beatty was out I, I moved it back into the bow seat red grave was stroke and you know and 
he obviously knew that what the feeling was because he was out to show us. So we we did this most phenomenal start. The, the boat just like just took off. It was like it was flying, and I was hanging on in the bow for dear life. And it was clearly all oh, right, okay. And the next day we raced the Germans, and you know by five hundred meters, you know where they'd led us off with this crew by five hundred meters, we were about a length of clear water up on them. You know, they never saw us. Yeah. And it was like, oh, shit, this is something special. <laughs> and that, that that ended any sort of arguments. It was basically, this is a very special crew. Um, and and that was it selected then. That's a wonderful narrative because it completely, it's, it's counterintuitive to the narrative that we have that we have since. They saw you as being argumentative, but you were just saying, well, he obviously wants to be in his single, so let him go and do that. Whereas Mike and Penny must have been going, he's a great athlete. If we get if we get the blend right, this is going to be a really special yeah. four. Penny Penny wanted him in the in the four. I think she didn't want him to be in the single. So I think she was letting Mike leading Mike along. And Mike knew Penny didn't want Steve to be in the single. Um, mm. Penny wanted a four with Steve in because she thought it, it this this has potential whereas from what i remember of steve's narrative in his book 84 would be he'd be getting close but it would be soul where he would finally win in the in the in the single yeah that's it that's right um definitely so yeah. how did that play out you've been through this rigmarole of everyone's trying to go steve's steve's all right isn't he you know and you're going yeah but i you know john's got three bronzes and you try all these combinations and then he drops in the boat you have this fantastic piece in this 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 great race against the germans what was the rowing is a weird sport every rower that i've ever met has got it as quite a, a dominant personality quite opinionated quite forthright and quite blunt even the ones who are good in 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 crews and having sat between lou and, and another rower while they bickered their way down the head of the river then we're not shy in making our opinions known. Yeah. So you've got all of these quite dominant personalities. You've already self-described yourself as being quite argumentative. Steve has never, and I've, the only time I've met him, my stepson headbutted him in the testicles. So we've never really talked <laughs> properly. Um, but he's not backward and coming forward. How did you blend after that? How did you? How did these these dominant forthright individuals blend? Well. The, the blending was apparent from, the, you know, the, the first time we went out in that crew. Um, yeah. So we always had that, you know, it, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure we, we did have bad outings, um, but, um, but I, you know, I can't remember any. So um, it wasn't, and, and the Sprackling style, you know, you're rowing like Steve and Steve was, you know, that, that evening he came out, he was so dynamic, um, could move so quickly. Um, and, and, you know, Andy was, Andy could back him up. You know, he, he'd gone through the mill then. He was just the perfect guy to sit behind Stephen in the three seat. So you had this enormous power and, and budget could move a boat as well. And I, I, I just had to hang on in the bow seat, really. So in terms of blending... Um, as a crew, um, you know, we weren't we weren't terribly close and matey at the time. I mean, I'd describe Steve now as one of my best friends. You know, I, I think he's a fantastic guy, um, and and Budge too, and Adrian Ellison, the cops. But um, 
you know, there, there were always tensions beneath the surface. And, and, you know, as you get more stressed, you're coming up to the Olympics. We had this huge argument on uh, training lake in San Diego, Lake Otte, um, which, which was kind of, you know, it started off between me and Mike Spracklin. I think Mike was maybe trying to get more out of me. Um, and he kind of was intimating that our four should have done better in, in Moscow. And, it, you know, it wasn't really that good. And, you know, I just flew at him, um, all the swear words you can think. And then basically the argument spread into the boat as well, because Steve's at one end and I'm in the other. Um, and and it, was, it was quite an unhealthy occasion, really. Um, and we all kind of went five separate ways, um, or six separate ways with the coach after that argument. Um, so, you know, as, as a crew, we were never matey. And, I, you know, I remember after we won the gold medal, I said to the guys, you know, why don't we just paddle over there to that side of the lake and just sit and take it all in? And they said, no, no, I want to get back. Um, and, and so it, it was, it was a very high performance crew. It was, it was put together to do a specific job. Um, you know, the next year Steve was going to skull, so it, it wasn't going to carry on. Bud Budge was going to do his medicine after that. Um, and, um, it was, it was put together to do a job, but you know, it flew from the first stroke. Lewin, do you want to come in and ask about the Olympics? Because I'm currently dominating the questions because this is fascinating stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. But um, I am thinking about that kind of that kind of external factor you all had, the fact that you knew that you were there to do a job. And I think, it, I think it's something that I, I imagine a lot of people in team sports understand the knowing that you that suddenly having that moment where you know that you can achieve your personal goals with other people means that it's a shared experience then that you have so much in the way of shared goals that a lot of kind of like the other kind of personal niggles that you might have with people outside of that tend to fall by the wayside yeah um the the only problem with that and you know again this thing things are colored by the way you look back at you know events so the way i look back at the olympics and that event was that we didn't have shared goals to an extent you know the other guys wanted to be olympic champions um I, I didn't have a desire to be olympic champions mainly because i didn't think i was good enough you said that before. Where, where did where did that come from? That idea that oh no, I can't do that. Well, um, it wasn't so much I thought I can't do that. It was just you know dare to dream. You know, like the 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 dream I could be an Olympic champion. I just didn't have. Um, it was you know I when we won in Lucerne on we did Lucerne on the Saturday. We beat the East Germans then. Um, broke it, set a new world record. And, you know, it's the first time I won at Lucerne in, in many sort of occasions of trying. And I remember being clear water up on the east and thinking, bloody hell, this is what it's like to be good. <laughs> um, and, and it was, 
really almost, you know, like like um, saying it was a dream would be wrong. But um, I was funny enough. I was the most experienced in that crew. So I, I, you know, I was the only one. I got an Olympic medal already. Um, so I was supposed to be the experienced one. But I, 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 I was v- very conscious that we had we were going there to win. So my motivation was not to lose that race. Um, as opposed to, I want to be an Olympic champion, which I had, you know, I, I wanted to go to the Olympics. I wanted to be like bronze medal was great. That was my level. I loved winning that medal. Um, the gold medal was, was another, another stretch. And partly that's what I think Mike saw and why we had the argument on the lake. Um, you know, he was trying to maybe, maybe he could have done it more skillfully that, you know, get me round to sort of accepting that I because w- obviously I was good enough. It's just that I didn't see myself in that light. So it's almost like going out, not rather than going out to win, you're going out to not lose, which would then lead to winning, but it's a completely different approach. Was there a point, I mean, you won, so you you now know that you are capable of being an Olympic champion. Was there any point before that that moment where you crossed the line and got and got and gone? We've won. Did it change? Did your thinking change? I can be an Olympic champion. This no uh, no no. It, it took fifteen. It took about fifteen years and loads of therapy for that to happen. <laughs> so tell us about the, the, those Olympics then, where you've been sent to win and you're you're going not to lose. Tell us a bit, a bit about the LA because it's the first one as a child I can actually remember, and I can remember my uncle at the time, you know, sitting me down to watch some of this, this amazing stuff like Daley Thompson winning and all the rest. But I probably saw you storming out of the mist on Blake, uh, is it uh, Casitas or, or? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So tell us about it then. Well, it was it was magical. I mean, the whole the whole deal was magical, and um, although we weren't. You know, we weren't based in Los Angeles. Well, we were for the second week in the Olympic Village. We had, rowing had its own sort of village up in Santa Barbara. Um, you know, we had a training camp in San Diego. There were, you know, some of the, the British athletes, um, uh, you know, people like Daley Thompson and Seb, Seb Coe, they they come to the, the same um, training venue as, as, as we had. But our, our regime, you know, there was no danger of us being waylaid by anything or distracted. But, um, you know, we did enjoy ourselves because um, we used to go to bed at 7 to get up at 3, 3 a.m., 3.30. And, and you know, that, that was our schedule for the whole time we were in America. With, with one exception, which was basically we saw, um, we went out to a concert with to see Lionel Richie with Tina Turner in support. Um, and, and so we went to bed later that night. Um, but, you know, the, the whole thing was so focused. This was, you know, what we were here for. But everything about going to California was magical. You know, even, you know, the police motorcycles on their Harley Davidsons and just... yeah. You know, every little thing like that. And, um, the, you know, the games machines, you, you had a games arcade of, of, of Steve played one, somebody had to press this button very quickly. Yeah, he got he got, got a problem in his wrist. <laughs> um, 
Because basically, you know, we we were done. We'd done our second outing. You know, we, the second outing was eight o'clock. And um, and you're done for the day. You're done for the day. And, and so, um, yeah, what are you going to do in the Olympic Village all day? Yeah, you're going to play on video games. Yeah. And, yeah. It's, but it's, all, it's almost like the world is smaller now and we have so much social media that there, there are no corners of the globe that we haven't seen. But going to L.A. in 84, the West Coast, you've got all of that, you know, the, the 60s counterculture stuff and the, the golden skies and the blue skies and the music and the history. And, and you're now there to, yeah, I can see how it would be pretty cool. Yeah, it, it, it was it was amazing. So I, I really feel that um, you know I took the benefit of going to Los Angeles and um, and and you know really being in the Olympics. And then of course we got the second week in in the village. Mm. It wasn't really a village village. It was it, you know it was at UCLA. There were two Olympic villages. One was at University of Southern California. The other was at UCLA. Yeah, they used the campuses, didn't they? Yeah, we were in UCLA village, um, but it, it, you know, it, I sold money. I sold my Olympic badges. You know, you, I'd stand out. The Olympic fever was rife, so I, I made some money to go on um, a holiday um, with the girl I was going out with then, um, and um, you know, I was selling these British Olympic Association badges. And, and people would buy them for about $100. I mean, you know, they just wanted a piece of Olympic action. <laughs> I, I, sold, I sold about three of them for $100, you know, $300. Decent money back then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I stood outside in my tracksuit and, you know, reading a book and, and people come up and talk and I say, well, I'm selling these badges. And um, that was just Olympic fever, really. But that was the thing about LA, wasn't it? It was... It was, I mean, you, you've said that Moscow was like an incredible experience and it was still this magical time, but LA, they did take it to another level. They did have that kind of, we are the home of show business and we are going to treat it like the greatest show on earth. I mean, they had a man in a jetpack on the opening ceremony. I mean, what's yeah. all that about? That's just like incredible. Can you remember the racing? I can close my eyes. I won't do it now because it's just embarrassing, but I can remember being at Runcorn. It's belting down. Chapman won't let us put our cagoules on because we're agecroft and we have to do it in skins and everyone else is shivering. The rain is literally pinging off my head and my shoulders like tacks from a nail gun. Ben's in front of me cracking jokes. I can see the, you know, start, I, can, I can still visualize certain races and certain pieces and I can bring it back. I'm sure... You know, as as I get older and after, all that will go. Can you actually remember anything, or 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 have you watched it back now? And your story is the story of what you see on screen. Can you remember any details about you know going up to the start line or or how the race? No, I, you know the it's really easy because you know the the whole thing that that's you know it's one of the the most tense I've been in my life. You know, in terms of we've been waiting a whole week for that race because we won the first heat and then. You know, we went straight through to the final. So um, we didn't have a repechage. And, um, you know, it, it was a sea, Santa Barbara's near the sea. Lake Positas was, was you know, it was, it was inland, but it, it was a, a sea mist that covered the lake. So, you know, the whole thing that morning was whether the racing was going to be postponed 
or held back. Um, and, and so, you know, I've got very vivid memories of, you know, the, the tented camp where we got changed in particular, you know, the British team tent where we went to get changed, and, you know, and thinking, well, this race isn't going to happen. Um, and then, you know, we heard the sort of, um, heard the buzz that crews were being sent out and, you know, Cox Falls were the first race. So um, I remember that vividly the warm up. you know, the bursts we'd do, you know, you'd say do a burst at 24 and it'd be at 28 and thinking, you know. Yeah. It was just, you know, it was creaming along really. Um, and then even on the start, it was so foggy that we didn't know whether the race would go until you hear the the start from the umpires, the, the motor of the umpires launch start, you know, and you just think, oh, right, we're going. And I think until until that moment, it was kind of, you know, we'd done a warm-up, but it was like, is this really going to happen? Um, and, and then the the my experience in the race is, um, so I've got quite vivid memories of that race, particularly because... Um, in, in the pre-race chat the night before, the plan was to lead the Americans the whole way. And, you know, we, we basically led them for about 10 or 15 strokes and then they, they came through us. So we had a race plan, which was to lead the Americans. And, and you know, they were starting to move away from us at about 250 or, you know. So um, I, I sort of took over the calls from Adrian Adrian had made suggestions that I should make calls in the race. So I remember doing calls in the race um, and, you know, most of them having no impact and, until we came into the last part of the race, which was kind of, you know, um, everyone, everyone's going as hard as they can, but you, you, you kind of, you know, the, 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 the US were rowing so well, they were really so smooth and so fluid, you know, that they 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 were just a, a really pacey crew and we we just couldn't, you know, move back at them. But everything we'd done in training, we'd always, you know, we'd always had this really great sprint finish, you know, whether we'd, we'd done pieces against the women's eight, which was a similar speed boat to us over a thousand metres anyway. Um, or, you know, the Cox's four, we, we could beat them outright, the Cox, the British Cox's four, but we'd always had the last, the last 200, you know, 250 metres. So I've got a memory of calling, you know, with about 350, 400 metres to go, you know, you know, this one, this one's got to count or something like that. Um, and, um, and then uh, a, a memory of coming through the American boat and, you know, of um, that we'd been down on for the whole race. And then a strong memory of, you know, being in front for about five or six strokes. We were about a uh, canvas third of a length in front or something like that and thinking, you know, we're going to win the Olympics. And then I crossed the line and then felt nothing, absolutely nothing. No kind of starburst of joy? No, I'm an Olympic champion? Or was it just no, knackered? It's just relief. Knackered relief. When Hodge came on, he talked about Beijing. Because Loon and I had that down as being 
and it's like victory from the jaws of defeat. And he had a slightly different take on it, which is a, when they went, it felt it felt so solid and they, they kept their length and their form so well that all of a sudden they went and the Aussies knew that the only, to, to try and beat them, that they had to get out and hope that the British crew panicked and fell to pieces and then didn't come back at them. Is that analogous to what the Americans did? They went, right, we know they're a fast crew, let's just get out and let's hope that that panics them into maybe not coming back. Or, or was there a sense that, okay, they've held us, they're still in front of us, but we have this this sprint finish. Hodge said that he, he, he always had confidence that they were going to win, you know, that they were going to get through them. Did you, did you share, would you say, say that was analogous to your experience? Well, yeah, um, I think I was very nervous and um, th- there were lots of shoulds win, you know, you know, this, this crew is, is the fastest boat in the world on its day. And, um, and we, hey, we'd beaten, we'd raced this new American combination in the heat and, and we'd beaten them. Um, you know, they, they were livid and I, we, we had, you know, the, the start used to be in French um, back then, et vous pray, parte. And you could kind of squeeze, you could kind of, if you, you know, you throw et vous pray and you were squeezing on the prey um, because there was a kind of regular intonation. So we yeah. got the most ludicrously squeezed start in our heat. And the Americans thought we should have had a full start, which perhaps we should have done, but, you know, we didn't. And I remember being in the video room watching it with them, and they were really, really irate. So they kind of thought they'd been hard done by. So, you know, if you look at logic, then, you know, then we were going to win. I I said the night before to Mike, when he came up with this race plan, I said, "Why, why don't we just, you know go toe-to-toe with them and then just use our sprint in the last 500 because nobody could touch us there. Uh, but that wasn't the race plan. So um, I don't think that I would have had... I, I think, as, you know, you know when you start to move, it's because you felt it in training. So as soon as we started to move, we, you know, because I've been calling and we hadn't moved, we'd either just held them moves had held them or something like that or they moved out again so as soon as we started to move in the last 500 you know when you're going up against the crew you, you kind of know this is it and, and recognize the feeling because you've had it before you, you exactly. the, yeah the boat feels solid you recognize it yeah and so we'd done it in training and and it felt like oh this is another training piece I, you know I, I didn't think that at the time but you know it, it was the sense we are now moving through and they can't do anything about it. And this is, this is the space. This is where, you know, it's our bit of the race. I find that sort of really remarkable because one of, one of the things that I was always very weak at as a rower in the water was having a sprint. So, you know, Pete, the, the number of times that I've been beaten in races that really mattered to me, by people rowing through me in the last, you know, literally 175 metres in some cases. I don't want to think about. And and to have that idea in in the bag that you can't, you do have a burst, you've got an extra one or two kilometres an hour that you can just fire in there is incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, is, is that something that you just always knew you had as a rower? You always had that sense of peak speed? 
Um, I think, you know, they, they did a thing, you know, um, they called it the cross factor in the Seoul Olympics because we, we had this amazing race where we were, we were last with 500 meters to go and we came through and won the semi. Um, and, and Dan Topolsky, who was doing the commentary on Channel 4, said, oh, that's Martin Cross. That's the way he rose. Um, and, and um, you know, in the, in the pair in, in 85, where we just missed, we missed them gold and 800s, and, and that was a magical sprint finish where, where we so, so nearly got through. So I was kind of known for sprint finishes, but um, likewise, when we won the pairs in Lucerne in, 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 um, in 86, again, you know, we were fifth or last with 1,000 metres to go and came through to win. Um, so a lot of my races, but I, I kind of thought, um, you know, if I'd have gone harder in the first bit of the race, then maybe I'd have been in a good position to win from there. You know, I think, you know, was I saving myself too much? I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure quite, um, you know, if I could have, if I could have been near a red line earlier in the race, if I wouldn't have gone faster. Do you think uh, it? maybe also a cultural thing as well because we we were we, we were taught you know i started rowing after redgrave's fifth inspired went down to agecroft the next morning had to do a 2k at, at um, 8 a.m to see how much i really wanted to be a rower it should have put me off for life but it didn't we were taught the fastest get to your fastest speed that you can sustain for the the 2k if you need to put pushes in or, or you need to do burns or you need to kind of sprint through or, or roll back on someone, then you haven't been going hard enough in the first half of, of the race. We had a wonderful rower at Agecroft, um, Aussie Ben, as opposed to Ben Charles, who ended up winning the Brit. And he pointed out, it takes a lot of experience and a lot of mental strength to either be down and row through or to be up and to kind of squash the opposition by sitting on them. These are all things that you kind of learn over time. And Jez Moore talked about when you get to that level of elite competition, you're dealing with very mentally tough athletes. It's, it's, athlete, it's an athlete mentality. Well I'm, well, I'm down by a length and a half with 400 to go, so what do I need to do to win? I need to do this, this, this sprint finish thing. You learn to do that as a consequence of racing in that culture, whereas it's now maybe... Yeah, I, I, I think... Um... I think partly there was a technical thing. I, you know, I think, um, you know, how much do you want to hurt yourself in the first 500s? You, you know, you go off pretty hard and then you're pushing in the minute. Um, but I, you know, I can remember, you know, being in the Olympics and the Seoul Olympics um, and crews, you know, were, were just leaving us going quicker than us. And, you know, I kind of thought I was going hard, um, but I, I just wondered whether I was really connecting on my legs. And, you know, I do remember in sprint finishes just feeling legs really hurting. And maybe I think I was just connecting. I was just rowing better um, towards those sprint finishes, particularly the pairs race in 86 at Lucerne. Mm. You know, I just remember feeling very leg, leg orientated in the last 750 um, and just whoosh off the finish. And off, yeah. So, um, you know, I think also culturally probably something in that because we did used to do more, you know, the, the, the profile of a race was more like this, uh, tended to be, um, yeah. 
than than hit on that red line. Although that Olympic final in '84 did feel like a red line race. Yeah. Um, you know, it was no nobody was really holding anything back. I don't want to skip over the rest of your career because as you've, you've just intimated, you did kind of go up, you did go on to uh, and carry on completely. That's all right. I'm, I'm aware that we've been talking for a while now. Um, you've got almost like a parallel career as a, a commentator, an organiser, an administrator, someone who's been very vocal about growing and its, its culture and maybe where it's going. We're kind of at a bit of a transitional period here because Jürgen is now gone. Yeah. I know this sounds like a jarring gear change, you know, a jarring gear change no. without any clutch. But looking back, and you've come through the kind of the ad hoc, but there was a very definite structure in the in the 70s, through the 80s, where we start to have more of a legacy of success. We've built on that all the way through to where we are now. Um, where are we now in British rowing? Jürgen's gone. He's left a legacy. What are we looking forward to? How should we move forward? How do you, how do you see it with all of your experience? Because you've been through all of the the this 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 historical period. Well, I, I think you know we're still in a bit of post Jurgen shock, really, um, in terms of um, the athletes are, are still Jurgen's athletes that will will go to the Tokyo Games. Um, I, I think that that will, you know, that will soon go, um, because, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a bit like a brave new world. There's this new selection system, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure what I think of it, to be quite honest, no, no chief coaches, you know, lead coach for each squad, uh, you know, a former international, um, rower or coach on, on a three person selection board, um, you know, it, it is, is rowing is entering a new era. I think it's also entering a new era because um, the the way the Cavisham the Cavisham system has operated can't it, you know it can't operate in that way. I think UK Sport have been quite clear about their funding priorities and you know saying that the athlete experience has got to be a good one in terms of. Um, it's not all performance orientated, so they've got to get stuff out. You know, some people have said maybe unkindly a bit more, be a bit more cuddly to the athletes. Um, and, and, and funding is now de- apparently dependent on that now. Um, and, and so the, and I think in a way that's partly why Jürgen's not there anymore. It's, you know, it's why someone like Paul Thompson's not there anymore. Um, because of maybe the way that they approach things and, and their athletes, so that there is now, you know, much more of this awareness about, you know, being too harsh, over harsh with athletes. So I, I think the Cavisham system is is at a, a turning point. Um, you know, if, if you look at the men's at the men's squad, particularly, and and you know, and, and the women's too, you've got some fantastic coaches in there um, that I think really could relate to the athletes really well. Steve Trapmore, um, Robin Williams, obviously amazing coach and, and you know, great thinker about how, um, how he coaches and how he relates to crews. Uh, Paul Reedy with the women, um, you know, again, fantastic, 
fantastic coach, great relationship, I think, with his athletes. So I, I do think British Rowing stands at a bit of a new era, whether the Cavisham, whether they'll ever do the likes of that um, Sierra Nevada camp again, where, you know, you're, you're pretty much close to breaking point every day and you have to come back and do it all again the next day. I mean, that, that was a typical Jürgen camp, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure um, that things will quite be like that again. And, and maybe they'll have to find another way of winning gold medals. There was something Jez Moore mentioned when we, when we talked to him, that, that it, it was often those kind of brutal camps that would turn crews that were okay into crews that would then go on to win kind of goals, those kind of experiences. And, and Andy Hodge, when we talked to him, uh, which was a fantastic chat, he made the point that that not everything a coach does is on a spreadsheet. And one of the great things about that he felt about Jurgen was he had a sense of the intangibles that if where if you put this row with this rower in this crew, this it will it will go faster than it might appear on paper. This is a gold medal winning boat. And and having someone to who has a sense of those intangibles or someone who will make the call at some point that this is it, that that's possible. We'll have to see how the new system shakes down to see whether it will deliver the success that the old one did. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I know enough to call it. A, you know, the other thing is we're on the outside looking in. And um, so it's easy to sort of, to draw conclusions about what goes on at Caversham just from little snatches of conversations, which, might not actually be the case, but, you know, it's, there's obviously been a, a huge turnover in terms of staff, a dramatic turnover in terms of staff. And, um, you know, and, and the notion of the, the athlete's interest has, has come far more into the picture than it ever has done. Do you think that there is an, there's an aspect that, right, British Rowing has got a clear plan or British Rowing is conducting quite a large and arguably somewhat risky experiment. Are, are they looking, do they think they know what they're doing or are they looking for learning points? Yeah, I, I think it's a mixture of both, actually. I think, you know, I, I, I presume, I don't know because I haven't spoken to him about this, I presume Brendan Purcell has, has come in with a clear direction. Um, I presume that, you know, he, he wanted to take more of a control in, in running things. He didn't want, the type of system that Jürgen was going to run and took the opportunity to, um, you know, Jürgen's contract was up anyway, but, you know, you would have thought, well, the, the most obvious thing is to renew it until Tokyo 2021 if that happens. I, I imagine Brendan Purcell's had, had, had a kind of clear plan, but um, I, I'm not sure, you know, how well thought through it is um, in terms of, you know, this is, they put this selection structure out to consultation. The British Athletes Commission was involved, um, a lot of, a lot of different voices and they've, they've kind of come up with this and I'm not sure they really know if, you know, this is the thing that's going to work and this is going to drive, drive gold medals. Um, sorry, go on, you're saying. No, go on. That's it. No, no, I, I, I was just... There's also this thing that, you know, funding is now dependent on kind of like the 12-year projection for an athlete rather than the 
four-year projection. Um, I mean, that, 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 that's come, I think, from all of UK sport. That's like the entire Olympic funding system. Yeah, but if, if rowing doesn't deliver in terms of medals, the question is what's going to happen to rowing's money? Um, you know, if, if the athletes, you know, if the athletes are saying it's a great system and we, we, we really love it, is that going to cut any ice when, you know, the medals, medals aren't forthcoming? I, I think rowing's been able to argue because of the success of the under-23s and this new group of athletes coming through, um, you know, that are mainly in the men's eight and the men's four, that you know there's that there's good hope for good medals in paris so you know um they've kind of done, downgraded their expectations haven't they for um tokyo for the, the expected medals but um you know the question will be what will happen to rowan's funds if it doesn't deliver in paris for example just to change tack again a few quick fire questions from all the rowers you've seen in the gb setup from rowers you've rowed with if you had to pick your coxless four for the ages, who do you go for? Redgrave, Pinson, Hodge, Reed, Granger, Thornley, Williams, James Cracknell, and would you be in your own boat? No, I wouldn't, no. Um, I, I think... Um, Not even hanging on in the bows? No. Um, I, I'm very conflicted between... Um, so, I, so I think... Um, uh, you probably, I might have Andy Holmes in there in the three seats. I'd probably have Matthew Pinson in the stroke seat. I guess I'd have Steve Redgrave in the two seat. And then I'm very conflicted between Alex Gregory and Constantine Leloudis. Right. Blimey. Oh no, goodness. well, the thing is, um, I mean, Hodge was, Hodge wanted to be in that four in 2016 and, you know, and, he wanted to stroke it and Stan got the gig instead, you know, and, and it was a phenomenal crew. I mean, he is, you know, people speak of him with a huge amount of respect. You know, I know him a bit. I've, I've never rode with him, but, um, you know, I, I can imagine, you know, a four, that, that that sort of four would be, you know, humongous to look at, really. Oh, well, they're all, they're all big beasts. I'm glad Andy Holmes made it because he was a superb oarsman. Yeah. Um, I, I know that I, I'd just be like a pain about it and I'd put Steve Williams and Alex Partridge in there and stuff like that. Yeah, Alex would be a great guy to have in and, and so would Stevie, Stevie W as well. Um, yeah. I, 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 just, I just like, the, you know, I mean, just purely for being an argumentative side, I like the guys that, that never quite made the headlines no matter how good they were. Um, yeah, but I, we're not going to argue with 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 Matthew Pinson, Andy Holmes, Steve Redgrave, and and Stan Leloudis. That's that's a fierce four in any era. I believe also, um, Martin, that you taught Ryan Gosling how to row. Oh, you shouldn't believe everything you read on the internet. Oh, really? Is that because I was going I was going to ask? Firstly, <laughs> if you did, you did a better job than John Hanna in sliding doors. His rowing was terrible. I've never seen yeah. such bad half slide rowing in my life. But if you did, and I'm now guessing that you didn't, would he make the start line at Henley in your estimation or, or only in a visitor's launch? No, I think in a visitor's launch. I, I think <laughs> Ryan, mind you, he can turn him, Ryan can turn his, his, um, his hand to most things. I love the, the dancing in, in um, La La Land. Yeah. And um, he's got great skills on, 
the keyboard as well. So, you know, why not rowing? Yeah, why not? Why not indeed? Honestly, we could do this again and ask about so much more stuff. Yeah. Luton, is there anything else? Because we've kept this man. No, no, I'm, I, 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 I think we should end it there, mainly because we have used up a huge amount of your time, Martin, and I'm very grateful for it. It's been absolutely illuminating. Um, but there is one question we always ask. Yeah. What is rowing doing right, right now? What's it doing wrong? And how can it make things better? Well, you know, I think globally the challenge for rowing is to make itself, you know, to continue to be relevant to the Olympic movement. I think, you know, they're looking, they're, they're doing, they're looking at, at possibilities, you know, this idea of coastal rowing. I'm not sure if that is the answer, um, although it might be, look quite sexy beach sprints on an LA beach for the, you know, the 2028 Olympics. Um, so um, I, I think, you know, for a sport that's very expensive, that has, you know, cost a lot to build a course, I think, you know, probably rowing's got short, shown more flexibility than it has done. I know that they're looking to maybe row a shorter distance in, in Los Angeles in 2028. But I think Ryan's got to show more flexibility. Jean-Christophe, who runs the sport well, I think, he's, he's really tried to be quite close to the Olympic heartbeat. He's, um, he's quite a conservative guy and you've got to really convince him, you know, in terms of changes. I, you know, I'd like to see um, the sort of... Uh, there's already problems, I think, with the Olympic quota. I think yeah. rowing is very vulnerable. I think the way to go would be to have you know, doubling up from the smaller boats to the eight yep. and the smaller things to the quadruple skull. I mean, they're, they're the ways I'd be looking to change things. If it did shorten down, what, what distance would you, would you like to see it? Well, I, I would say rowing is about the right distance. I think if it's much shorter than 1500 meters, it's a different type of sport really. Yeah. Um, so I would, I would go for, you know, races on a nearby, on a river or somewhere near, you know, even if it was to something like that, I'd go for that, um, that sort of type of venue. I wouldn't really want it to go into a sprint sort of 500 meter or thousand meter format. I don't think that's the nature of our sport. Okay. Uh, Lewin, you, you can't see me cause I'm grinning ear to ear cause that's just been, the most fantastic chat. Thank you so much. Absol oh. I mean, absolutely wonderful. Uh, and the fact that you, that a, a living legend has come on with two chances like ourselves to chat about rowing. <laughs> I, I'm going to be floating through the rest of the week. That's amazing. Yeah, we had a great time. That was, it was good, wasn't it? I've got to be up early tomorrow because I'm chatting with an, an, a bloody legend tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, we saw. We saw. We're looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah, an active teacher, an active podcaster, an act. I mean, you, you just haven't stopped since you started, have you? No, 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 no. Well, I'm going to wind down with some modern family or Frasier now. Probably something similar, Martin, at, at this end up in the frozen north. But thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Lou. See you. Bye. Well, that was fun. I enjoyed that. So that was Martin Cross. And again, 
I've just come away from that knowing so much more than I ever did before. Um, both about Martin Cross, which I found something of a revelation, and about the entire era of rowing, I suppose, before before 1996, before the revolution of lottery funding. It was a long one, but the reason it was long was because, and I think you'd probably agree, Lewin, we kind of grew up with Martin, you know, on our televisions and talking about rowing and writing about rowing and, and appearing, you know, he was a very visible public face and, and voice. And he's mm-hmm. very confident. He, he's, he's very um, sound in his, in his judgments and his pronouncements. And the reason why the, the conversation went into interesting paths and digressions was that this was, I felt, a side of Martin that you and I certainly didn't know existed. Very thoughtful, very nuanced, very considered about his own career in rowing and very considered about rowing itself. I, I also felt a, a very, very gentle and very, very kind and decent man to spend a couple of hours talking about rowing with. You know, the, the voice of Crossy on commentary is, it's brash, it's in your face, but Crossy, the man, is, he's a lovely bloke. He was prepared to share his time with us enormously generously. And um, I actually found a revelation. Uh, you know, I, I am really, really glad to have spent that time with him um, and say, you know, I, I know more about him and I know more about rowing. And, and, you know, some of the things he told us, you know, particularly about the selection for uh, the LA4 were just incredible. And, you know, and, and also just that kind of realisation, it's like, oh, bloody hell, this is going fast with Steve in the boat. They, they, they were kind of magic. The thing is, we, we, we use words like repetitive hyperbole and, you know, inflated rhetoric, or, or I do, and one day I'll look at what they, they actually mean on, on this podcast. But we always say that this is the best one that we, we've ever done. And that is testament to the fact that we've had wonderful guests who've been very, very insightful and inspiring. But Martin's could well be the best we've ever done because it's the era of British rowing before the bedrock went in and the foundation of the Redgrave era that built this massive, mighty, you know, um, edifice that we now call British rowing. I mean, it's it's within our lifetimes, Lewin, but it's almost a dim and distant past and it's just fascinating. And it was, it was just great to hear him chat about it. And he was just so yeah. open. And also he revealed to me the key difference between myself and Steve Redgrave, other than the five Olympic gold medals. And do you know what that is? He said, Steve Redgrave moved so fast in the boat. He didn't make the, it wasn't that he was moving the boat so fast. He wasn't making the boat, but he was capable of moving inside the boat so fast. And I can't do that. And I know I can't do that. Yeah, for such you know, a big man, for such a big man, I think the words that kept coming out about Steve were, were just how incredibly dynamic he was. And the he he had a point to prove because of all of the uh, the politics that surrounded British rowing at the time, and his his you know his very well documented um, disagreements with Penny Shooter, uh, his determination to be in the single. And if you're going to put me in this boat, I'm I'm going to show you that I'm I'm worth being in this boat. And and as Crossy said, I, I just sat in the bows and, and hung on. Wonderful uh, and just 
it, it's a long one. I haven't taken a lot out because there's a huge amount of wisdom about training, about the way forward for British rowing, about what what uh, various styles of rowing between the GB style, the Spracklin style that they adopted at the LA Olympics, the style that, that Crossy was using before that. And there's just, this is one to come back to and just, just enjoy. I, and it was a joy to do. That's all I can say. It was a joy to do. I, th- I think we've said enough, haven't we? I think Crossy said it all anyway, to be fair. Yeah. It's fantastic. Right. Good night, ladies and gentlemen.